when when somebody tells me I can't do something, it's almost like adding fuel to the fire. You know, you can't climb Everest with one lung. You can't beat Hodgkin's lymphoma. You can't beat Askin's sarcoma. And I'll just kind of look at him and be like, you know, watch me. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's an honor to have you. Dr. Richard, I, I, I appreciate it. Very grateful for your time and, and for having me on. So we just went over your bio and your story is so remarkable and has inspired so many people. But for our audience that hasn't heard it, I'd like you to take us back to your childhood and tell us about what happened to you and let's begin around the age of 13 because that's when you got your first cancer diagnosis, if I'm not mistaken. It, it, it is, and I'm, I'm glad you didn't say, let's go back to uh, nine months before you were born, because that would have gone down a path we didn't want to go. Um, yeah, 13 was was kind of, I, I jokingly say, that's that's when my life started, and my life definitely changed because I was uh, a, a young boy in Willard, Ohio, which is uh, uh, mostly a farming town, and my backyard was pretty much either a bean field or a, uh, a cornfield, depending on the season, and I, I had a, a normal childhood growing up, you know, I was I was in all sorts of sports. I was doing all sorts of crazy things, um, digging an underground fort in my backyard, getting in trouble for that, you know, climbing trees and racing, uh, racing down uh, with my brother, which mom didn't really appreciate that too much. Um, most people would race up and see if you can get to the top as fast as you can, but we we jump from branch to branch like monkeys. Having a great time in the Midwest, but one day I was um, in the eighth grade playing basketball and suffered a knee injury, and that knee injury uh, basically triggered every joint in my body to go so haywire that every joint swelled up so much. I the next day I looked like the Pillsbury Doughboy, and um, they my mom and dad stuck me in a local hospital. You know, I think it was like Willard Memorial Hospital or something, and uh, they they started treating me for pneumonia because they thought I had pneumonia, obviously. And you uh, you pretty much. Aren't going to get any progress of, of curing cancer by sucking on a nebulizer. So I, I wasn't getting any better. And, and I remember my mom and my dad were called out into the hospital hallway. And the doctor cut right to the chase, Dr. Rosso. And he said, Scott, Terry, do you know any oncologists? And that was the first time that my family had ever really heard of the, the, the quote unquote O word or the, or the C word, you know, oncology or cancer. And my mom called uh, a friend of hers that she graduated, who she graduated with, and he just happened to be the CEO of a hospital in Columbus, Ohio. And she just 
point blank asked him, if any of your daughters got cancer, who would you take them to? And without hesitation, he said, Dr. Mellor Davis. So my mom and dad took me to the Columbus Hospital, Riverside, and I was started, uh, I was went through, went through a bunch of um, tests to get um, the results back of, of what I had, you know, bone marrows, you name it, I, ha- I had everything done to me. And as a, uh, an eighth grader, as a 13-year-old, the doctors diagnosed me with advanced stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. And believe it or not, they told my parents, so oh, by the way, your son has three months to live. Wow. So what was, you know, as a 13-year-old, what was your reaction hearing that? You know, to be honest with you, I, th- I don't think any 13-year-old has a full grasp on what life means. So for me, I, I didn't fully understand, oh, hey, I'm going to be dead in three months. Oh, hey, you know, you have cancer. I don't think I fully understood the ramifications of what was going to happen to me. And I don't think that I, I fully understood what life was all about. So... Initially, I just—I was told that I was sick. My parents didn't say you have cancer; they said you have Hodgkin's disease. And they told my friends and family and everybody else in the small town, "Hey, Sean's sick." But it didn't take long. You know, thirteen, any thirteen-year-old's nosy. And nowadays, with the internet, you just type in Hodgkin's disease, and it pops up. Oh, it's a lymphoma. It's a cancer. Back then, I went to the the um, hospital, the hospital library, and did some research, and I found out that way that oh, by the way, I have cancer. It's something you said is curious to me and interesting because you said that 13-year-olds don't really have that grasp on our limited time on this planet. I wonder how much that had a role in you not dying in three months like you were supposed to because you didn't really accept it, I suspect. Yeah, I I think, you know, the old adage of ignorance is bliss. I think in some cases it, it is very, very true. But I also don't think not knowing is, is, is beneficial. So when I did find out what was, what was happening in my life, I started doing a lot of visualization. Um, I actually pe- uh, pictured myself. I don't know if, if you're familiar with the old comic strip Calvin and Hobbes or not. Sure, sure. I, I love those guys, and I, I read them all the time. I thought he was hysterical, and one of his alter egos was Spaceman Spiff. And I actually became, uh, in my mind, Spaceman Spiff, and I, I put myself in this tiny little microscopic spaceship in my chemo drip bag. So I pictured myself dropping from the bag into the IV tube, going into my body, and I visualized myself and all these other little spaceships collecting in the heart, being launched out and following our, our uh, GPS dashboard system, essentially. Um, tracker to the tumors that I was supposed to kill. And when I saw it, I snuck up on it and I unleashed these missiles and bombs and everything else that were loaded with chemotherapy drugs to destroy the the cancers. So I I think that really helped a lot. And and maybe if it didn't, it just kept my mind busy for a while. So so as you were using visualization to shoot missiles at your cancer cells and staying extremely positive, what was the mindset of your parents at that time? You know, I, I think looking back at it, um, recently I've been thinking of, of everything that I went through and everything my parents went through. And with with a child, you know, you see the, the commercials for uh, St. Jude and, and, and the other kids with, with cancer, that, that becomes their life. You know, when I was sick, that was my life. That was the only thing I knew. I didn't know what it was like to be well. I didn't know what it was, what it was like to be healthy. So kids are very resilient and they adapt to their environment incredibly well, which I did also. 
But looking back at it, like I said, I was thinking what my parents went through must have been worse. Because here's their firstborn son going through this this cancer, and I'm sure they cried themselves to sleep every night. You know, I'm sure for them it was one of the, if not the hardest thing they've ever had to do. Because you can't take that illness away from your child. You can't jump in there and say, hey, give me the cancer and let my child be free. You know, it, it, it's devastating to to know that cancer is not an individual disease. It's it's a family disease. It, it brings it, it pulls through not only your your entire family, but your support group, your town, your 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 community. And knowing what my parents had to go through just destroys me sometimes. And knowing that they couldn't do anything except be there. But oftentimes, that's probably one of the best things you can do is just be there for someone who has cancer. And, and yet. You were given three months to live, but you lived, obviously, we're talking, so you lived, <laughs> yeah, but, right. but, you know, three months went on. At, at what point did you and your family start thinking, maybe we've turned the tide here? I honestly want to say it was, and I'm, I'm just guessing here, just a few days after the diagnosis, maybe a week or so after the diagnosis, because we just never let it sit in our brains and fester. You know, my, my parents did a great job of helping me be quote unquote normal. They helped me get out there and do as much as I could when I was feeling well. They pushed me, you know, and I pushed myself. And I think that helped a lot. But we never had the notion or the, or the idea that, oh, Sean's going to die. You know, because I, I do a lot of, of, of life coaching and executive and performance coaching. And one of the, the key factors is you pretty much get what you're focused on. So if you're focused on not dying, then you're going to die. If you're focused on living, you're going to live. And, and granted, yes, there are some instances where people have the right technology, the right attitude, the right doctors, right everything, and, and they, don't, they don't survive, which... You know, I always keep in my thoughts and prayers, but for the most part throughout life, I've, I've noticed that whatever you focus on is what you're going to get. And we were focused on living. We were focused on surviving. We weren't focused on not dying, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Language is very, very powerful. In fact, there have been a lot of studies about the way the brain processes language. And what you said is exactly what the research suggests, Sean, is that if we focus, for example, and use the language, I wish I you know, didn't have this debt, even though you're saying you don't want the debt, the brain hears debt, debt, debt. And that, that becomes what we're focused on instead of focusing on money or abundance. So very, very much on point in terms of what science is showing us. Uh, So take me now through, or take us through, we're 13, you're having this positive attitude the missiles are working. Did you go back to school? Did you resume some semblance of normalcy? You know, I was in and out of school. Um, whenever I was home and feeling well, I was in school. Um, the teachers actually did a great job of keeping my parents up to date on if, if there were any illnesses going through, going, going through the school. You know, they would, they would pick up the phone and say, hey, I don't think it'd be a good idea for Sean to come to school today because a lot of kids are sick. They have a cold. And oftentimes, as, as I'm sure you know, people going through chemo don't die of the cancer. They die of the common cold because of their compromised immune systems. So they did a great job of, of protecting me from that and shielding me from other illnesses. It, it was tough because I was in and out of school so many times. The teachers, again, living in a small town, the teachers actually came to my house to help to help um, help me study and help tutor me a little bit. But I did eventually make it through the eighth grade and, and went into my freshman year of, of high school. 
That's that's awesome, and and I think you know, certainly the fact that you were in a small town where that was possible was was a great benefit to you. It's it's not as likely that would have happened in a big city, probably because of logistics and whatnot. But that's really awesome. Yeah, and no, I was I was very fortunate. I mean, Willard is is a great community, and it was a, it was a fantastic place to grow up. I was very lucky. So you're now in the ninth grade. You've resumed schooling. You're in high school. And then you got some more bad news. Yeah, I guess you could say it. Um, <laughs> no, like one cancer wasn't enough. I had to go for for another one, right? I was I was going in for a checkup for my first cancer, and the doctors at that routine checkup found that uh, I had a second cancer, and initially found it on uh, an X-ray. It was a golf ball-sized tumor on my right lung, and believe it or not, in one day they found the tumor on an X-ray, did a needle biopsy, took out a lymph node, put in a Hickman catheter. Uh, did a thoracotomy, so they cracked open my ribs, took out the tumor, sewed me back up, uh, put in a, a drainage tube, and started chemotherapy in less than 24 hours. Wow, and, and this is not the same kind of cancer as you had previously. It, it's, it's not. It was a completely different, unrelated, uh, second primary cancer. So putting it, in, I guess, in layman's terms, um, two completely different cancers, and I'm the only person in the world who's ever been diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma and Askin's sarcoma. And is the Askin sarcoma as typically terminal as the stage four cancer you were previously diagnosed with? The the Askins is, is is actually much worse. It's a branch of um, Ewing sarcoma, and three out of a million people get this this type of cancer with a prognosis of roughly six percent. So, wow. putting those numbers in in kind of in in um, under, terms that would be more understandable, you know, three out of a million people get this type of cancer. If you have a hundred people with this cancer, ninety four die. That's amazing. And so, I, I'm sure you and your family were thinking, you know. What are the odds of this? Here we go again. So, do, did your did your approach remain the same? Were we still shooting missiles? What, what did we do differently, if anything, <laughs> for the second round? We, we were we were still shooting missiles. We were still doing the visualization and relaxation and all that good stuff. But I think this time around, being sixteen, because I went through the first one, I knew what I was, what was going to happen with the second one. I knew my life was going to be put on pause. I knew my whole life was going to be on hold. I knew things were going to be hard again. I was going to lose my hair. I was going to lose my friends. I was going to, uh, my, my weight was going to fluctuate up and down. I was going to be 60 pounds overweight, 60 pounds underweight. You know, I, I knew my life was just going to be miserable again, but being a little bit older this time around, I had a better understanding of life and I was a little bit more afraid that I might die. But again, I, I had that attitude of I'm going to continue fighting. It's not going to destroy me. It can take my body. It can destroy me and, and riddle my body with tumors. But one thing it can do is it can never touch my mind. Hey, guys. Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. 
That's that's an amazing attitude. And at what point, you know, so this this one was diagnosed at the age of sixteen. At what point chronologically did you know that you had defeated the second cancer? How old were you? I want to say it was about a year, year and a half later, because they the second time around they only gave me fourteen days to live. And they were afraid that the treatments were going to kill me because no one's ever had these two cancers. And my body was just subjected to a chemical cocktail. You know, they were tossing everything at me. So if there was anything good, you know, which I'm, I'm always looking for the, the good, good situation, the good, good things in every situation. If there was something good by having the second cancer, it was that the, a couple of tre- treatments that they were giving me, some of the chemotherapy, I think it was Adriamycin and Vin, uh, Vin Christine, we used to treat the Hodgkin's. So if there was any residual left from the Hodgkins, treating the Askins was going to kill off the Hodgkins. So there was something good in there. But I continued forward, and and 14 days turned into 15 days, which turned into 16 days. And believe it or not, every time I was in for a cycle, I would say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. That would be half a cycle, and then I would be released to to have my body recover. And then I'd go in um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. That would be one cycle. And every time I was in the hospital, the doctors actually put me in a medically induced coma. I don't even remember being 16 years old. Wow. How long were you in the coma for? On and off for about a year, you know, and, and jokingly, I'm, I'm sure some people probably wish they could forget being 16 years old, but I, I, I really can't remember much about being 16 because my treatments were three months of chemo, one month of intense radiation therapy, which just, ha- which just happened to be my uh, in September for my 16th birthday, and I, that's when I got my driver's license, and then I went back in for 10 more months of chemotherapy. I can remember uh, the month of, of September, kind of like um, an alcoholic having a, a moment of clarity. I had that that month of clarity, but then the rest of us just a blur. That's so that's so profound. I, I mean, it's the, the way you liken that to an alcoholic's moment of clarity. I mean, again, you know, the average sixteen-year-old, these milestones, driver's license, you know, doing all these things. You were in a coma, so. But as you said, fourteen days turned into fifteen, and 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 so on and so on, and then after about a year and a half, you beat this thing. So. Having come through that, and again, most most of your peers, 17 and a half, 18 years old, you know, are focused on trivial things that teenagers focus. <laughs> what, what was your perspective on the world like at that time? Yeah, I, I still look back and laugh sometimes because they were worried about, I think at the time it was the Reebok pump or the newest Air Jordans. I'm like, who cares? Right? <laughs> you know, I, I have a saying that you never see a U-Haul in a funeral procession. You know, what's what's the point of accumulating things? What? Who cares? And, and so many people are, are so caught up in in trivial mundane things and and they want to keep up with the joneses you know they want to keep up with their neighbor they want the best the next best thing and they always compare themselves to others when i think one of the reasons that i i have been able and, and fortunate enough to experience so much of my life is i haven't compared myself to other people i've compared myself to myself you know myself has been the standard i push myself a little bit more than yesterday a little bit more than yesterday and if i can continue pushing myself without a comparison of others i have a nice line of, of self-improvement. That's awesome. And, and, and I love that. And I, I wonder now though, so what happens next? Cause you get out of high school and you've had this profound transformative experience surviving, you know, impossible cancers. What happened for you after high school? Well, have you ever seen the movie animal house? 
Oh yes, of course. The best. <laughs> I, I went to college and relived my high school years that were robbed from me and turned into Belushi from Animal so, House. I was going to ask which character you were. I was going to ask which character. So did you give a, a speech on uh, D-Day and the Germans bombing Pearl Harbor? Yeah, the Germans bombing Pearl Harbor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just let him go, man. He's on a roll. I, I did. I went to Westminster College, and I, I turned into the the proverbial Belushi. It was it was awesome. I started off molecular biology, wanting to cure cancer by splicing genes, and it's very difficult to uh, to pass immunology and organic chemistry. I'm sure, as you know, without opening a book. So I I, I decided uh, I should probably change to something else that I was more interested in, which was psychology, because I had that background of what I went through, and I wanted to be psychologist for cancer patients to help not only the patient, but as I said earlier, cancer is not an individual disease, so I wanted to help the patient and the families. But I also realized that you know I I couldn't help anybody else until I helped myself. So after I graduated from college, I went to grad school. And I was enrolled into a doctoral school, and I decided to take a break. There were a couple things that happened when I was in Jacksonville, Florida, and, and I decided, all right, well, I can't help others until I help myself. And this whole the whole time I've been going through life, I've been dragging this bag of issues, and I, I need to lighten this load before I can help somebody else. How did you lighten your load? <laughs> I, th- I think I still have that there. I, th- I think it's, it's still there, but it's slowly um, coming out. But I think the, the biggest part was staring myself in the proverbial mirror and just asking myself, who the hell are you? You know, what do you want? You know, who is Sean Swarner? And I kept asking myself that because if you don't know who you are, then how can you figure out what you want and, what, and how to get it? You know, before you before you figure out what you want, you have to know who you are and what your values are. And there was there was one moment. It's actually in in one of my eBooks. So you can get it for free on my on my website, SeanSwinner.com. But I remember I was a bartender in in one of the largest clubs in Jacksonville, Florida, and I was I was I'll be honest, I was flirting with somebody, and she ended up getting left behind by her friends. And I was thinking, sweet, I'm going to take her home. So halfway home, she ended up throwing up in my car. I dropped her off at her her place where she told me she lived before she passed out. And I carried her up three flights of stairs to her apartment. And I remember just kicking on the door with this lifeless lump in my hands. And somebody opened up the door, and I could smell the pot coming out. I could see lines of cocaine on the on the uh, the coffee table. People were around playing video games, and there were some burnt spoons. I mean, they were doing everything under the sun. And I just stood there in awe and, and in shock. And I, I looked at the person, this lady in front of me. I was like, does she belong to you, or does she belong to anyone here? And she laughed, and she said, ha, again? And I just thought to myself, you got to be kidding me. So I, I put her in a little papazon chair in the corner and left. And at that moment, I thought to myself, this is not me. This never will be. I never want it to be me. You know, and, and before the, uh, the conversation started here, before the interview started, we were talking about why people have to go through things like that to make them realize that th- things in their life need to change. And that's when I changed. I, 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 that was not me, and I needed to do something different. So bartending was not me. I, the drugs and all that stuff, I never did, just to make that clear. But when I was slowly going down that rabbit hole, I decided, look, I, I need to get back to my person. I need to get back to who I am, and I need to get back to my values. Ironic, though, Sean, that you used the John Belushi analogy because he never got out of that rabbit hole. And and although it took someone vomiting on you <laughs> to give you that moment of clarity, what an important moment for you to say, you know, this is not who I am. 
Exactly. And, and everybody out there who's listening, you have a choice. That's one of the greatest freedoms that we have in life is a freedom of choice. You can choose how you want to see anything that happens to you, any situation you're in. You have a choice on whatever perspective you want to choose. Amen to that. Amen to that. And and uh, so you had this profound moment. You decided, you know, this life isn't for you. So talk to us about how you then transitioned into doing some of the really remarkable things that you're better known for. Well, I, I, I immediately dropped out of grad school. To be honest with you, I, I decided, all right, I'm going to take a sabbatical and figure out what, what I want to do with my life. And that's when I started doing some research into myself and research into what cancer survivors had done before because I realized that, uh, you know, going back to the bag of issues and the problems, cancer was a part of my life. I just never dealt with it. You know, when I went to grad school, I kind of brushed underneath the, the carpet and, and moved on. But no one can go through something tr- so traumatic in their lives without actually dealing with it and figuring out what it's done for them. So for me, cancer was a part of my life. It didn't define who I was as a person or a human being, but it helped me to become who I am today. And it helped me become who I was in that situation. And I wanted those values of helping, guiding, and, and leading, and, and sharing, and inspiring, and motivating people to do something else. And from those moments of, of sitting back and just just questioning myself, you know, if, if you want great answers, ask great questions. And I kept asking myself great questions, those, those deep thought-provoking questions, and found that, okay, well, I, going through cancers definitely defined who I was in certain aspects of my life, and I wanted to help other people who might be lost, who, who other people who might be down in their lives, and not necessarily just cancer patients, but anyone who needs a little inspiration and, and anyone who needs a little hope. You know, the human body can live for, for and I know you're a doctor, so this is roughly, um, the human body can live for roughly 30 days without food. The human condition can sustain itself for about three days without water, but no human alive can live for more than 30 seconds without hope. And I wanted to use Mount Everest as a platform to scream hope. So when you told people that with one lung, you were going to climb Mount Everest, what was the feedback that you got? Yeah, that, my, my, my response right there was pretty much the response that everybody else gave me. They, they said it was physiologically impossible to climb Everest with half your lung capacity. And yet you did it. You know, when, when somebody tells me I can't do something, it's almost like adding fuel to the fire. You know, you can't climb Everest with one lung. You can't beat Hodgkin's lymphoma. You can't beat Askin's sarcoma. And I'll just kind of look at him and be like, you know, watch me. You know, I'm, I'm going to do it. So when you were standing on the summit of Mount Everest, what went through your mind when you first reached that peak? Holy crap, I have to go back down. <laughs> <laughs> No. Um, the, the first thing that went through my mind, I, I collapsed to my knees, my hands and knees, and I cried like a baby. I thought of all the people who have been touched by cancer, all the struggles, all the hardships, all the, the issues that they have to endure. And here I am on the world's highest peak with a flag that has names of people touched by cancer. And if they weren't there, literally underneath all those names, it said, dedicated to all those affected by cancer in this small world, keep climbing. So it was an homage for everyone who's ever been touched by cancer. It was literally screaming hope from the highest platform on the face of the earth. 
And I, I was I was in tears, and I called my brother on the radio and told him, hey, you can call mom and dad on the satellite phone and tell them at this moment in time, you have a son who's standing on top of the world. That is absolutely amazing. And so you did climb down. <laughs> and <I> did. <laughs> did, did you know, though, I, I mean, was it was it on your radar at all that you were going to receive such international notoriety for doing this? No, no clue. I just did it because I was really hoping to uh, bring awareness to cancer, and I was really hoping to inspire other people. And after uh, after Everest, I wanted to continue that. And I, there's something called the Seven Summits, which is the highest mountain on every continent, which makes sense. I mean, you know, seven continents, seven peaks, seven summits. So I decided to to go and continue climbing the uh, the other six. I figured uh, after Everest, the rest have to be downhill, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so so you knock that out. And, and and as I as I alluded to, you really became famous for for doing this. And so, talk to us about some of the experiences with that. You know, winning the ESPN award uh, and and how that has helped you impact ca- cancer awareness and research. You know, I, I think more than anything. It's 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 not me. It's it's the story because everybody has a story. We all have two ears and one mouth for a reason. You know, if if we listen twice as much as we speak, we can learn something from every single person on the planet because everyone has a story. And my story is just getting out there, showing people what's possible. You know, everybody has doubts. Everybody has uh, those moments when they look in the in the mirror and, and question themselves. But if if there are stories out there of inspiration, and there are hundreds of them, you know, if not millions, you know, not not just mine, but so many people out there have amazing stories. And if we just share those stories with other people, we can encourage others around the world to do good, to 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 help others, and and to encourage other people to go above and beyond what they think is possible. That's amazing. And, and so talk to us about some of the things that you're doing in terms of your specific charity work, and I, I want to get into your books a little bit as well. Well, we, my brother and I, in 2001 or 2002, founded something called the Cancer Climber Association. And what we do is every year we take a cancer survivor to Africa and climb one of the seven summits called Kilimanjaro. It's an amazing mountain. We do a six-day hike and a five-day safari through the Serengeti and Gorongoro Crater and Lake Manyara, which is just, I mean, fantastic. If you want to see where the Lion King was was filmed, quote-unquote filmed, it's, it's over there and it's beautiful. But every year, so say this year, well, I guess next year when we go in 2018, wow, when we go, we're going to be raising funds for a cancer survivor to go in 2019 and so forth, kind of paying it forward. Um, and it's it's fantastic. And you can go to cancerclimber.org to donate to the cause. Uh, but we're looking for a cancer survivor now to go with us next year. Um, we're also looking to find uh, someone to help us with a mobile camp, believe it or not. We're looking for about $1.3 million to raise, a mobile, raise funds for a mobile camp that's going to tour around the country and visit local children's hospitals and unfold to this 6,700-square-foot dome where underneath this dome there's going to be a high ropes course, a climbing wall, movie theater, classroom, game room, cafeteria, and a 2,000-square-foot turf area where the kids can set up camp for the weekend. That's amazing. And we will have links to both of those in the show notes and in the Daily Helping app so people can contribute to those causes. Fantastic. Ah, fantastic. I love that. So, Sean, talk to us about your first book. Um, the first book is actually a printed book by Atrium, uh, which is a subsidiary of Simon & Schuster, and it's called um, uh, Keep Climbing. 
how I beat cancer and reach the top of the world. But the newest ones that I'm putting out right now, you can go to, like I said, my website and order and, and just download the book for free. It's an ebook, but I'm also putting it together. It's going to be the, um, uh, it's going to be a, a number of books put together called the seven summits to success. And I'm really excited about it because the first one is called Everest becoming unstoppable. And it, it, it helps people, with their mindset. Because as we talked about before, whether you believe you can or you can't, you're probably right. And if you think, if you have an initial core thought when something comes up of a project or whatever it might be, if you don't think it's possible, it's not possible. But if you come at it from a different angle where you believe it's fully possible and you want to go at it headstrong and, and, and accomplish it, you'll be able to. And this book really helps people define what they want to do. And it helps them understand how they can get it by beginning with the end in mind, you know, in, in that visualization aspect. The second one I believe we're putting up on Amazon is called um, Kilimanjaro Into the Self. So understanding who you are. And I don't like the word, the, the self-help genre. I just don't like that word because it makes people feel helpless. Um, so I call it self-leadership. And oh, so many people who are leaders out there want to want to lead other people, but you can't lead anyone else until you lead yourself. And these books really help people understand who they are so they can become a powerful self-leader. Outstanding. And so that's two of the seven summits. What, what are the other titles? If you can, I'm going to put you under the gun here. Oh yeah, yeah. So in the the books are actually going to be going to be coming out in the order that I did them. So it's uh, Everest becoming unstoppable, um, Kilimanjaro into the self. We're working on Elbrus right now, which is the highest mountain in Europe. And then after Elbrus, I want to say I did Aconcagua, which everyone has issues pronouncing that one. It's the highest mountain in South America. And then from there, I believe I went and did um, the highest mountain in Antarctica, which is uh, Vincent Massif. And then I went to Australia and climbed Kosciuszko. And then the last one was Denali up in Alaska. That's awesome. Very, very cool. And and I know you're also working on a documentary called True North, which is going to be airing on PBS. Talk to us a little bit about that. Oh, for sure. It's it's a production by the, the workshop. And if Tommy's listening, hello, Tommy, Tom, Todd, all those, all Triple T, everybody else associated with the workshop. I hope you guys are doing well. See you guys next week. Um, it's going to be airing, premiering October 4th in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which is just north of Philadelphia. And it, we're going to have a VIP event if anyone's, I don't know when this is going to go out, but if anyone's there, um, please come or, come over and join or send me an email. I'll, I'll send you an invite because we're looking to make this as big as humanly possible. But then it's going to go out to, I believe, 300 to 350 different PBS stations starting January 1st. Um, and then we're going to be doing a tour to five or six different major cities. One of them is going to be Denver, probably Seattle. Maybe maybe Columbus, Ohio, where I had my treatments, but we're trying to figure out the exact um, dates and locations right now. But it's going to be phenomenal. It tracks my trip to the North Pole, which I just did just this, this past spring, which was a culmination of what's called the Explorer's Grand Slam. Uh, that's the seven summits, the high, like I said, the highest mountain on every continent, and skiing to the South and North Poles. The North Pole was the last one I had which is called the Explorer's Grand Slam, which, joking, I think it sounds like a Denny's breakfast platter, but <laughs> I'm, I'm the first cancer survivor to do that. And if you toss in the Hawaii Ironman, believe it or not, I'm the only person in history to do it. So we're trying to share that story with other people. Amazing. And, and again, to reiterate, everything in terms of the schedule and, and whatnot, 
as it relates to True North, we will also have in the show notes so people can find that as well as the cities where you guys are going to be. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. So, Sean, you've been named as one of the most eight inspirational people alive, and everybody listening to this clearly knows why. We're we're getting to the end here in terms of time. As you know, I, I always ask my guests, what is their biggest helping? You've dropped some tremendous value propositions for us today, but what is your biggest helping, the single most important piece of information you would want somebody to walk away with after listening to our episode today? The biggest helping that someone could take away would probably be something along the lines of remembering that we're human beings, not human doings. Be someone who helps someone else and be yourself. I love that. And and Sean, I know you mentioned it in the very beginning of the episode, but where can people find you? Uh, It's easy. I'm in Colorado. (laughs) (laughs) SeanSwarner.com. Perfect. Perfect. And and we will also, for those of you driving in the car or climbing a mountain, we will have this in the Daily Helping app in the show notes as well for you to check out. Well, Sean, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was absolutely an honor to have you here, as I said. Now, like I said before, Dr. Richard, this is fantastic. I'm, I'm really excited and very, very grateful that you brought me on to help share a story. And then hopefully others uh, share their stories as well, because the, the entire world needs hope and inspiration. That has never been more true. And for those of you listening to this show, thank you for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please go subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because that's what helps others find this podcast. But most importantly, go out there and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know them, and post it in your feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. Until next time, everybody.